This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? 9.37am. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mukhtar with Wong Shaoning. This is WTF, or What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. It's our job to send you into the weekend full of little bits and pieces of knowledge that you can share with whoever you meet. Yes, so you can sound smart, clever when you have your dinner parties, <laughs> or meet your relatives, you have small uh, cooler talkers, uh, water cooler chit chat, which, you know, people are like, wow, this is new. I never knew that. And that's exactly the purpose of WTF. So let's get started then with a preview of a report that's coming out next week. And oh, this it is, came out already. Actually. It came out already. Okay, yes. talk, talk us through, Shawning, what's the report? What the What is the report about? Well, it's actually from an NGO uh, called Debt Justice. And what Debt Justice tries to do is to look at all, and of course, this is a rep- reported in The Guardian, is being picked up by the Financial Times. And it looks at which low-income countries will be facing their biggest bills for servicing foreign debt in this year. And the reason why this is so critical is if you're, it's just like a household. If all you're doing with your income is paying off loans, that leaves you very little money for the day-to-day which you need. So you can't spend on healthcare, you can't spend on education, you can't spend on development. And then, of course, that crimps a country's ability to grow and improve its GDP, right? So they what they did is they did a study and uh, they found that I think the country which is paying as much as 75% of all the income to debt is Sri Lanka. And we've been covering Sri Lanka throughout the year, right? Last year was a terrible time for them. Uh, it ended up resulting in a change of government. They didn't have any foreign reserves. There was no oil. There was no medicines. Sh- food was in short supply. And that's really the case when you just have so much debt, a country can't function. And closer to home, I think we've got countries in our region that are also facing really high debt burdens. 65.6% of government revenue for Laos is um, is goes to paying external debt. We also see 46.7% of government revenue for Pakistan going to pay debt. So again, when you have this much of your revenue being used to pay off your loans, that just leaves so much less for building schools, for um, infrastructure, for for healthcare services. That's that's the conundrum mm. that comes out when you have such high debt levels. So when I went into this debt justice website, the first thing I did, guess what? is to look for Malaysia in this list, all right? Because I'm curious, right? Do we have a lot of foreign debt to the point where it's detrimental to our economy? The answer is no. I don't think we have a lot oh, of foreign few. debt. We actually have a lot of domestic debt, right? Um, I hope the problem with us is that, and we've had this conversation, I've had this conversation with the World Bank uh, country lead, Apuva, Dr. Apuva, and his basic point, his basic point is, if you have too much debt, then where does all your money go? You know, your money, your day-to-day is just covering your loans, your interest on your loans. And, you know, we also have a lot of high fixed costs, which then leaves very little for fixed fi- uh, development. So whether it is foreign or domestic debt, the point is to keep your house in order. But I think the pressure is even more so when it's foreign debt because then you're subject to the vagaries of currency fluctuations. Right. So if, let's say, US dollar suddenly rises overnight, which happened in 1997, 1998, it really caused a lot of pain to a lot of 
corporates and even to on some level some countries who had a lot of US dollar exposure. And it's that it's that kind of squeeze that's actually driving the trend towards de-dollarization. Why more and more countries are saying, hey, we need to decouple from the US dollar because we saw just how badly um, finances were hit when US dollars rocketed to mm. their record level last year. But then this begs the question about debt forgiveness, right? And then the responsibility of countries that lend to you. So do they do that with the right intentions? Or are they in a way allowing you to binge on cheap credit? And very often the loans that they offer to you is tied to some development project where maybe you don't really need it in the first place. So that's the issue with China, right? And it's Belt and Road initiatives or some of their projects. That's kind of the accusation that's been levelled at them. Are they really just uh, leading countries into a debt trap? I think there isn't really conclusive evidence on that. And even China now, they're doing, they're, they're, they're how to say, not realigning, but they are uh, grappling mm. with the consequences of, I guess, uh, countries having higher debt and being unable to pay their loans. For Sri Lanka, for example, the whole reason why it took so long for them to get an IMF deal was because they had to deal with China and try to get them to um, change their uh, credit, terms. terms of credit. Um, and that's still ongoing. China hasn't forgiven any debt yet. I think everyone's looking to see whether that will actually be a path that they take. So this is a conversation that's going to be very much in the forefront of uh, economic ties between countries moving forward. Yeah, so uh, the this Debt Justice, which is an NGO, they say that, that greater coordination effort from multilateral organisations such as G20 need to happen to ensure that debt, uh, that governments are able to spend money on essential services rather than servicing debt. And this is why it's so important for Malaysia to manage our debt levels. We cannot let our debt go out of control. Uh, turning our attention, we were talking about China. Let's stick to China, but this time related to what's happening with France. We. Oui. <laughs> Sorry, Very my bad French—the only French I know, <laughs> other than the French brands. But okay, I digress. So why we're talking about this is because uh, President Emmanuel Macron did have a pay a visit to Beijing last week, and um, his comments there caused a bit of a stir. Now he went together with Ursula von der Leyen of the European of the European Union. She's the head of the European Commission, and really they went as a sort of good cop, bad cop. Right? The mm. EU was seen as tougher on China in its policies, whereas Macron seemed to be uh, appearing to chummy up to President Xi Jinping. I think they had a very friendly uh, visit, a very friendly exchanges. And he made comments about Taiwan, something about um, that it was not the continent, the EU continent's business to get caught up in crises that are not ours. And that has been interpreted in different ways from the audience back uh, in Europe. Okay, so he defended his position uh, during a visit to Netherlands. He said he stood by his comments. And he said that nothing has changed in France's support for the status quo in Taiwan. And Paris supports the One China policy and the search for a peaceful resolution to the situation. But I was reading an Economist article on this where basically they, they said that there were two errors with the comments he made. The first error was in that it furthers China's ambitions to divide Europe and peel Europe from America. And this was partially also driven by what happened during his little visit in China where he seemed to try to cozy too much with the Chinese leadership, spending too much time with them, uh, versus, of course, Mrs. von der Leyen, who just got an hour or so in that company, right? And the second error is that, in a way, it does undermine allied support for Taiwan. So they, you need to have a united voice when it comes to what is the global position on Taiwan, right? And the need for ensuring peace in the region. 
And this ties in as well with China's ambition to um, become more of an international presence on the geopolitical stage, right? So earlier mm. in the week, we did speak to Richard McGregor of the Lowy Institute to get his thoughts on China's evolving foreign statecraft. They were previously known more for their economic diplomacy through the Belt and Road Initiative, but as of late, they also playing the role of international mediator in some very long-standing disputes, such as between Saudi Arabia and Iran. They're trying to push forward a peace plan for the war in Ukraine. So they're really trying to show that, hey, we're not just an economic might. We also have geopolitical clout. And I think their relations with the EU also tie into that because they do see Europe or if not the whole EU, then certain countries in Europe as swing states um, that they could maybe bring over to their side uh, mm. against the US. So really, everyone seems to be pawns in this whole EU, like uh, US-China geopolitical chessboard. Yeah, It's like Game of Thrones, isn't it? Yeah. While we're on China, can I just mention this, that the WTA tournament are there tournaments will return to China after they boycotted the country over um, the Peng Shuai sexual mm. um, assault allegations. They were they they stepped out of China for a really long time. But now as the economy reopens, no I think... No more COVID restrictions? I, I, it kind of feels like business, um, business principles overtake any human rights, I suppose, concerns at this point. In the end, you know, it is all about the economics. Money, 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 money. Very quickly, can we talk about Twitter? Okay, sure. Why not? I mean, how <laughs> How many of us caught the interview uh, that the BBC had with Elon Musk? Uh, the interview was done by James Clayton, who is a North America technology reporter. And I, I want to give some context because he just sent out an email on Tuesday lunchtime requesting, uh, you know, very cheekily whether Elon Musk would agree to an interview. And Elon said, yeah, sure. How about tonight? So that's how it happened. It was such a spontaneous thing. It, it took place within a matter of hours, which just goes to show uh, how mercurial Elon Musk can be. And the fact that he is arranging his own interviews, that's also really surprising to me. But it was quite painful to watch, I have to confess, right? I mean, it's hard to interview Elon when he says the dog is the CEO. And it shows you a lot of curveballs here and there and... It was, yeah. It was, um, I guess, if you wanted insight into how Elon thinks, it would be a pretty useful uh, video to watch or to listen to. Yes. Um, lots of headlines coming out of that. Uh, one of them being that Elon didn't really want to buy Twitter, but he was forced by the court to do so. Yeah. Um, but, but now he won't sell it. But now he won't sell it. So there you go. Again, mercurial Elon Musk. Uh, he will always make headlines for sure. 9.47 in the morning. We're taking uh, a quick break, heading into some messages, but we will come back with more of this week's top stories. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. 9.49 a.m. Thanks for staying tuned to The Morning Run. You're listening to WTF or What's the Focus, our weekly recap show. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning. Now, earlier we were talking about some of the international headlines that uh, garnered attention over the week. Let's turn over to the local front. And I think one of the longstanding issues that uh, quickly gained traction over the course of the week is really the issue of retirement. Because just like in France, where there was a big, where there's still protests actually yeah. going on over the raising of the retirement age from 62 to 64, uh, a similar debate is starting to come up here on whether we should be raising our retirement age from 60 to a, 
a different number. Sixty-three, I think, is what the suggestion. Right. Suggest- okay, there are a few reasons for it. Right. One one major reason is that Malaysians, and this is data coming out from EPF, tells us that we are not ready to retire at sixty. We don't have enough savings. Uh, I, I think that the figure is so low; it is actually shocking that maybe less than 30 percent Malaysians have two hundred thousand in EPF for retirement. And even if you ask me, two hundred thousand is too low ball a figure, especially. Since and this is related to the second point, we are going to be an aging population. So why are we then, uh, you know, putting aside probably human capital or not maximizing our human capital? But I think this has a lot of emotive. This this topic is very emotional because for some people, retirement is what they are really really looking forward to. Right? They have grand plans of just taking it easy. Some people have, you know, like they decide they just want to spend time with grandchildren, pick up a hobby, travel. Great. But I, I don't know, are you ready to retire at, at 60, Shazana? I am happy to report that that's still quite a while away. I'd like to retire now, Shaoning, but I know that's not a possibility for me at the moment. Um, but really, the push against um, raising the retirement age comes from all generations. Mm. Yeah. So the older generation doesn't really relish the thought of having to work longer if they see the finish line so close. And the younger generation may think, hey, if these old guys stay in the um, stay in the workforce longer. Are you talking about me? Are you talking about not me? Not at all, Shaoning. I'm, I'm totally not talking about you. But <laughs> the longer they stay, does that mean that um, work opportunities for the younger generation are also limited? You know, so there are I I feel like that is a misconception. And I think as people age in the workforce, they will find different um, ways to contribute. There are different avenues for those of the silver generation to um, to get income. Um, So this black and white, you know, this either you're in or out type of uh, dichotomy doesn't really work, I think, in coming to a solution in which everyone can build enough wealth in order to retire in a comfortable manner. I mean, to be honest, it's, it's down to your own individual circumstances, right? If you saved enough, right, and you've looked at how you spend or your intention to spend for the next 20, 30 years, because bear in mind, Malaysians are living longer and longer. I think the average age for women is 77, men is 74. Um, Some people, of course, go, you know, lead long lives. So you need to factor that in. And of course, you know, consider inflation. Cost of living pressures is rising every year. Now, after you've done the maths and you think, I want to retire now and I can do it, I say, okay, why not if you have a plan? But for some people, the reality is it's just not possible. So then what do you do, right? Then the idea is you still want to be relevant. You still want to work. But you, like you say, maybe an in-between kind of solution where you're not working you know, five days a week, nine to five every day, but a hybrid. And at the same time, I think even like me, I'm not young. Retirement is, is what, 10 years away from me? The important thing is to always make sure that your skills are still relevant. And that's the point, right, about upskilling all the time. So that's the thing that individuals can do and should be doing in order to retire comfortably. But there's also the flip side of government policy and social safety nets and what kind of net w- nets can you put up to, to help mitigate mm. the fallout of retiring without having the appropriate amount in your bank, right? Yes. And I think... There's been talk about, for example, introducing child social policy. So introducing a fund for, for children that can help them as they age throughout life. There's talk about uh, how do we strengthen social pension for the elderly who are out of work. There's so many different um, mechanisms that can be explored and tapped into. Well, in Singapore, right, they have uh, laws 
that it's also the children's responsibility to look after the parents if they have financial means to do so. Aha, that's you con- remember? That's a, that's a controversial um, topic as well. It's a debate, right? Yeah, so there Should is children- legislation to that effect in Singapore. So uh, there's no right or wrong answer, but I think the important thing is your rights. The, the, we need to question our social protection policies and look at rebuilding the savings of Malaysians. And I know that we talk about EPF a lot, but EPF only represents a, a portion of the society. There's so many other people out there who don't have EPF savings. So what are they relying on and how do we make sure that they have the safety net? Um, these are all things that I hope policymakers are considering. It's lots of different puzzle pieces and a big jigsaw. You have to move them all together. And since we're on the topic of EPF, right, this week, in the last two weeks, you know, we, we discovered that you can use Account 2 as... And now, of course, our Minister uh, for Finance, Deputy Minister, has said it's not collateral, but you can use it to apply for a loan from two banks, if I'm not wrong, one of which is Bank Simpanan National and MBSB. Apparently, the interest rates that you can get are lower than commercial rates, but there are certain criteria that must be fulfilled. So it is... I I have to say that the criteria is quite complicated to me. (laughs) So I I can't really say exactly what the criteria is, but it does seem to be very targeted. You have to fulfill certain conditions that will make you eligible to actually take out that loan. Um, Hence, it's really not just for anyone who needs a loan. And if you have an EPF account, you can apply for it. No, you have to fall under a certain category. So in that sense, this is actually quite a limited targeted program. Yes. Uh, in the first place, when you look at your EPF, you should treat it as really a nest egg for retirement. If possible, if possible, don't touch the income there. Because basically EPF does pay you a very attractive dividend every year, right? And you just want your money to grow. It's the, it's the benefit of compounding interest. Of course, we understand sometimes it's, you, you have to, but the idea is that even if you've taken it out, you should make plans to actually, if possible, rebuild your savings. Because even now, EPF does allow voluntary contributions up to 100000 a year for any individual. Indeed. So if you are looking um, to take this alone up, do read the fine print, do look into the details. Note that at the moment, it's only those um, aged 40 and above, I believe. So um, not for people who are under 40, unfortunately, for now. But So uh, just me. <laughs> in any case, uh, we are coming up to 9.57 in the morning and we're going to be heading into the 10am news bulletin. That's pretty much all that we have from the morning run on WTF for this week. Happy weekend, everyone. We have the news bulletin and then it's over to Enterprise. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, The Business Station? You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.